Hello, and welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. My name is Kate, and for this week's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Kateri McRae. Kateri is a professor of psychology at the University of Denver, where she directs the Automaticity Affect Control and Thought Lab. Kateri is also the co-host of a popular podcast called The Actor's Mind, which explores acting from a psychological perspective. You can check it out by going to theactorsmind.com or simply searching for it on your preferred podcast platform. In today's episode, Kateri and I discuss a fascinating quantitative case study of button phobia and the surprising insights it provides into the bigger questions about the interplay between cognition and emotion. Without further ado, here is our conversation. Hi, Kateri. Thank you for joining me on the Stanford Psychology Podcast. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm super happy to be here. So thanks so much for being here. And thanks for sharing this fascinating paper with me, which is a case study. And it is a case study of attention, fear, disgust, and avoidance in phobia for buttons. First of all, we don't get a lot of case studies on the podcast. And in fact, I think this might be our first one. So would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about this paper? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I have a special joy uh, talking about this particular paper um, because it is a little bit unusual, as you say. Um, And I think that maybe it would be helpful for me to talk a little bit about how the paper came into existence. So um, I did not just decide that I wanted to diversify my portfolio by adding a case study and then go hunting for a topic. Um, what happened was, is that actually, um, as, as part of a sort of extra scientific um, interaction that I had with a friend of mine, um, I discovered that she had a very, very strong fear of clothing buttons. And uh, she, she actually used the word phobia when she told me about it. Um, and I thought this was a uh, really unusual. And she recognized that this was really unusual. And the reason it first struck me as unusual is that there has been a longstanding um, assumption that has been articulated in some older theories around specific phobia, that there are certain types of things that that humans tend to be phobic of, and they tend to be things that threaten our survival, right? So it's very common for people to have phobias of um, snakes, of spiders, of heights, um, that, that might be things that cause us direct bodily harm. Um, and it's not as common for people to have phobias of, um, everyday objects and especially everyday objects that have not been around for many, 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 um, you know, centuries in terms of evolutionary history. So I just, I sort of did a double take when she mentioned that she had this phobia, um, and she was very open to talking about it. And after we talked about it a little bit, just sort of casually, um, you know, in, in a social capacity, I sort of floated the idea of, would you be maybe interested in coming into this psychophysiological lab that I have access to that has the ability to control stimulus presentation and like all of these sorts of things? 
so I could sort of study your reactions um, to, to buttons and some other things. Would you be willing to maybe do that? And she said, yeah, I think I'd be willing to do that. I said, ooh, okay. Um, so at the time I was a postdoc um, in the Stanford Psychophysiological Laboratory, which you are familiar with. And um, so I went to my mentor, James Gross, and I said, okay, I, you know, there's this person who's willing to do this. Um, what do you think? And he said, sounds fascinating, you know? So we had to actually had to take a several month pause. It wasn't like I could bring her into the laboratory the next day. We took a several month pause to design a study that I thought would get meaningful information about how um, she reacted to um, these objects that, she, that in her own words, she was phobic of, um, as well as some other things that would be meaningful to compare. So there were sort of two um, categories of comparisons we thought were potentially interesting. One was to compare her own reactions to other types of things to see whether or not this really was a specific phobia or whether or not it was a generalized, um, you know, kind of heightened emotional response. So we decided to uh, bring her into the laboratory, show her pictures on a computer screen um, that were of clothing buttons. And we gathered um, a few dozen pictures of clothing buttons from the internet of all shapes and sizes. I'm happy to talk about that more. Um, and uh, we also showed her some pictures from a standardized image set um, that, uh, that a lot of people might be familiar with, um, the International Effective Picture System, that had been previously normed to elicit the feelings of disgust and um, fear. So we thought, okay, those are emotional kind of controls on specific phobia. And then we needed a neutral condition. Um, and we had a lot of fun thinking about what an appropriate neutral condition would be. And we finally settled on zippers um, because they were matched to the buttons in terms of frequency of encountering them in everyday life, as well as um, some of the low level visual features of, of, of zippers were similar. So buttons were mostly displayed as a central object on a plain background. And the pictures of zippers we found were also um, plain, you know, zippers displayed on a, on a, a plain background. Um, so we thought there was a good uh, match there. So we were able to, to look at those comparisons. And then as we were designing this tricky thing, I had never done a case study before. A lot of case studies are written up by clinical um, uh, researchers or clinicians, and they're really in-depth descriptions of, uh, of a particular um, clinical phenomenon. Um, and I, I was not trained in qualitative, descriptive, uh, you know, sort of uh, reporting. Um, and I knew I wanted data. <laughs> I wanted numbers. And I was like, okay, what do I compare her, you know, ratings of all of these different objects to? Um, and so we found, um, age, gender identity, and education matched controls. So we had a very small pool of controls, um, and uh, but we, we matched them exquisitely tightly, um, uh, again, to her um, race and ethnic background. She was highly educated, and so, so were all of the controls. Um, and, um, and they were all, um, uh, within a couple of years of her age. And so we thought, well, if we can, you know, if we can't have a, a large group of people with a button phobia, at least we'll have a really tightly matched group of controls. Um, 
So using that, those tools in, in terms of the design, we um, were able to determine that she did indeed have elevated levels, both compared to the other stimuli, um, as well as to the control participants. Um, in terms of um, attentional measures, so her ability to accurately detect the presence of a button um, that was presented before a backward mask, and I'm happy to talk more about masking um, as well if you have any questions. Um, we saw that she had um, elevated uh, self-reports of um, not just um, uh, fear. So a lot of times uh, phobia is conceptualized as a disorder of fear, um, but also of disgust. Um, and I thought this was really exciting and new. And then I took two seconds to look, look at the literature and specific phobia researchers for several decades now have recognized that disgust plays a very big role in specific phobia. So um, Budmiel Atunji comes to mind as someone who's really established the importance of disgust um, in clinical disorders, including specific phobia. Um, and then interestingly, we had a final measure, which was um, avoidance. So whether or not um, she reported looking away from the pictures. And we found that her levels of avoidance were uh, to the buttons were indeed elevated compared to the control participants. However, she also demonstrated elevated avoidance of the disgusting and um, fearful inducing pictures compared to the controls. So we thought that was really interesting that her attentional responses and her affective responses, her emotional responses were really um, selective to buttons, but her avoidance behaviors did not seem to be as selective. And so maybe there's something about avoidance behaviors that maybe generalize when some of these other measures don't. Um, so that was our, that was the, the, the sort of main crux of the study because it was unusual. We call, we call this a quantitative case study. <laughs> and um, I have to admit, we sent it to several very high profile journals and the editors of the, those journals were very interested in the paper. Like I got a very positive response from the editors of the journals, but they ultimately said, given the trends in this sort of, you know, shoring up of methodological rigor um, and our focus on power, we can't justify this single person, you know, type of design um, as being generalizable and, and being published alongside reports of hundreds and thousands. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the, of the COVID study that, in the, you know, tens of thousands of participants, um, so it didn't fly at any of the really high profile journals, but honestly, um, it ended up being many, many years. I, I, we collected data for the study in 2009 and it was published in 2021. So that is my record for the longest delay between data collection and publication. So by the time it got out, we were absolutely just giddy to have it be able to be shared with other people. And I'm so delighted that you found it. <laughs> Um, because I don't expect it to be one of like my most highly cited papers, but it was really um, enjoyable to work on. And actually the participant um, at the end of the day uh, told me that she felt really validated by the results. I shared the results with her um, and she said, I feel like this is real now. Like, I feel like this is an actual phenomenon that you've documented and it's not just like a quirk or you know what I mean? Like, like sometimes I feel like this is all just in my head and I, I, I shouldn't be asking anything about my world to like change, but now it feels like a real, um, you know, confirmed phenomenon. So that was actually really, um, an unexpected, you know, perk as well.
Wow, that is such an incredible story. I actually had no idea that it took you so long to publish this paper. And what's also really incredible here, I just want to say, is this participant who was terrified of buttons and still decided to put herself through actually coming into the lab and looking at what must have been hundreds of images. I mean, I don't remember the exact number now, but lots and lots of images that must have been really unpleasant for her to look at. It was um, definitely hundreds of pictures. They weren't all yeah. buttons. It was okay. 25 um, buttons with holes and 25 buttons without holes. Um, but yeah, it was really, um, it took a lot of courage, I think, for her to do that. Um, it was interesting. She knew enough about um, the general sort of uh, psychological principles that we might be looking into that um, she actually said, I will come into the lab and look at pictures. She said, I will not look at actual buttons. So please do not. She said, I'm not interested in exposure. Please do not have me physically interact with live three-dimensional buttons. But she was very willing to look at pictures. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just really glad to hear that she actually found this experience to be valuable and meaningful somehow. That's just really awesome. So before we dive more into some of the more substantive questions about this paper and your work more generally, I also wanted to emphasize something else that you said earlier about the story behind this paper and specifically the response that you got from the editors and the reviewers when trying to publish it. And here's why I think this is interesting is because I think these days we're so used to the conversation being about the need to have larger samples with more participants in order to make sure that the findings that we get can actually be trusted, which is terrific, right? That's a great goal to have. But what I wonder about is if it also makes it sometimes easy to forget that there are just so many other ways of generating knowledge And also so many really important questions that do not necessarily lend themselves to doing experiments with lots and lots of participants, or at least not easily so, right? And I I think your study is actually a really excellent example of that and a great reminder that we should let the question drive the method and not the other way around. So with all of that in mind... I wonder if you have any takeaways or words of wisdom from this experience about how we should be thinking about case studies, but also other methods that maybe don't fit this vision of what an ideal study in psychology should look like these days. Sure. That's a really great way to sort of um, <laughs> to sort of wrap up my struggle. Thank you for that reframe on my on, on, on the what was a difficult process. Um, I do, you know, I think one of the reasons I am, the the two reasons why I'm really proud of this study is one is I think it demonstrates a little bit of um, opportunistic science in in the best possible, um, you know, sort of tone of that word, the best possible, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, Yeah, the the best possible connotation of the word uh, uh, opportunistic. 
Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't on my list of objectives to achieve during that time. Um, I was really grateful to um, the, the, the co-authors of the study and to James um, for saying this is something I was allowed to spend my, my time on um, and, and sort of taking a risk in that way. Um, and I think some of my favorite studies have always been ones that presented themselves to me rather than me engineering them from like my ideas of what should do. Um, I have a couple of studies I've done at Burning Man, um, which are the same way, right? That I would never have thought to study Burning Man until I went to Burning Man. And then I saw somebody doing research and I was like, how do I get in on this? And, you know, two years later, I was handing out surveys at Burning Man. So um, I think that that's being able to be responsive to the world around you, I think is a really good quality to have as a scientist. And I think a lot of the studies of unanticipated events in the world, a lot of our um, knowledge of flashbulb memories come from, um, you know, uh, 9-11 and the Boston Marathon bombings and like things that that scientists scrambled really quickly to be able to study. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic is another good example of that. Um, and then the other piece of it is, um, again, just the persistence, you know, not only being a little bit persistent with editors to try to convince them of the value of it, but most of that gap was not like me submitting the paper and it getting rejected. Most of that gap was like me transitioning from a postdoc into a, you know, professor position and having children and balancing that. And, um, you know, this was a paper that for most of the years between data collection and publication, I was the author for whom it was most important to get this out. It was kind of on my shoulders. And um, as, as your schedule fills up, when you become a faculty member, um, ironically, those projects tend to fall to the bottom of the list, right? A lot of times you feel an obligation to your students, your postdocs, your trainees, your colleagues to be there for them and, and give feedback on all the things they're working on. And I think that that's a wonderful impulse to have. But I do think that carving out time to say, no, this paper is important to me and I am going to write on it for an hour a day, you know, for these six months, or I am going to bring it to workshop to a writing group, um, we actually had a writing group um, at DU that I brought this paper to because it was just so important for me to, to keep it on the front burner. You know, um, when it hit like the 10, 11 year mark, I was like, it will not be 20 years before this gets out. Um, so that doesn't quite speak to the diversity of the types of evidence that you were asking about. Um, but I think that if you, if you hold yourself to the strictest standards of the most prestigious journals, you might then discard good ideas that you have that are more reactive, that do come from situations or phenomena that you just encounter in your life as a person, um, you know, and, and it, it sometimes squashes a little bit of creativity to be like, oh, well, this isn't what the mainstream, you know, journals are all really uh, driving toward right now, like, therefore, I shouldn't even conduct the study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, these are, I think, really valuable lessons. And again, I just want to say that I'm really happy for you that you were actually able to finally publish this paper, especially now that I can fully appreciate the story behind it. Uh, I'm just really excited that it's now out in the world and we can all read it and learn from it. So now I wanted to jump into the substance of the paper a bit more and specifically focus on what you said earlier. So you mentioned this idea that used to exist, but maybe uh, less so now, I'm not sure, that fearful responses and phobias are typically aimed at things that are somehow threatening, that threaten our survival and our well-being. 
And in the paper, you use the term biological relevance to explain this idea. So bears and snakes and spiders are biologically relevant because they're dangerous or they can be dangerous. And things like buttons are not. I suppose, I, I guess they can be. Maybe if a person is afraid of choking on a button or something. But for the most part, they seem to be in a completely different category than snakes and spiders and storms and such. And of course, one of the main contributions of your paper is showing that subjective experiences of fear, as well as some of the behaviors associated with it, are actually awfully similar when it comes to biologically relevant objects like snakes and spiders and less biologically relevant objects like buttons. But I'm still wondering if you think there is more to it, there is more to the story of biological relevance. Are there perhaps other differences in experiences or in the consequences of emotions that differ along this spectrum of biological relevance? Do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I have so uh, my mm, I have so many thoughts. I don't even know where to start. I've been really interested in this idea for a long time. And I think that the, you know, historically, this has been a very compelling narrative where our brains have evolved to detect certain features in the environment and to process those, the information contained in those features um, with priority, right? So that we will be able to detect and then process that information more quickly so that we can then produce an appropriate action more quickly. Um, and all of those words are usually included when people define emotion, right? Um, so that emotions are elicited more quickly slash more robustly by certain types of things. And that these types of things are most importantly um characterized by these low-level features, right? So these these low-level perceptual features, it's very easy to study these in terms of visual features, but um, ostensibly auditory features as well. Um, So things like sharp edges um, or uh, characteristic curves that you might see in snakes, for example, are things that our visual system has evolved to fast track um, and say, I see one of those, we need to get the emotion machinery going super fast so that we can run away. And that even milliseconds, I think the idea um, behind the evolutionary adaptation of this is that even a millisecond advantage in the brain can translate into a survival advantage if you can escape from threats more quickly. Um, and I've always found this to be a really interesting um, kind of idea And the way that people talk about it, they package a bunch of things all together at once. So, right, like if something is in this category of biologically relevant or um, biologically biologically prepared, biological preparedness was sort of the the first um, term that was coined to to reflect this, um, you know, people start ticking off this laundry list of, you know, our responses to things that are biologically prepared are automatic, hardwired, fast, you know, strong, more prone to, uh, you know, phobia, all of these sorts of things. And I do think that that packaging of all of those things together, there's a little bit of wiggle room around. And I think there's some holes in the data um, about all of that. I think also like a lot of very useful distinctions, it tends to get oversimplified in terms of things are either biologically prepared or they're not. Um, And there's obviously a continuum there, um, which I think is really helpful. But 
it has been very useful for me to remember that this is how some people think about emotion because that story I just told you about the importance of processing biologically relevant information really quickly um, stands at a pretty drastic counterpoint to other people's conceptualizations of emotion, which are really, really super cognitive and heady and all about your own um, interpretation and musings and like, you know, mulling over what is going on. And if you think about this in terms of how people operationalize emotion, let's say to study the brain, which is something that I do, um, if you put people in an MRI scanner, which is one of the most convenient ways to study the brain, um, if you put them in an MRI scanner, um, some people will elicit emotion in the MRI scanner by showing images of these things that are thought to be biologically prepared. So snakes, spiders, injuries, um, even faces that are displaying um, common, common negative emotions. Other people will put someone in the scanner and say, think about the last time you were wronged. You know what I mean? Like, that's huge. Like, first of all, like to interpret, like I was wrong, like what a big concept. Mm -hmm. When was the last time? What are all of the like details surrounding that? Who are all the people and their names and where were there's so much like situational information that is so much richer than like snake. (laughs) (laughs) And for not everybody, but a lot of people who study the motion, the brain don't always distinguish between whether or not they're a listening emotion in this, you know, rapid fire, low level visual feature sort of way versus this heady, complicated interpretation based, you know, highly situated way. And if you look at studies that have actually compared these two ways of eliciting emotions, they have some overlap in the brain. And they both result in in somewhat similar feeling states. And so feeling states have to be instantiated somewhere in the brain, (laughs) you would think, I think. Uh, And so that's not totally surprising. But these low-level, biologically prepared, however you want to call them, I often refer to these as um, bottom-up generated emotions. These bottom-up generated emotions do actually seem to literally recruit lower brain structures, right? So structures that tend to process sensory information more directly, and then the structures that those feed into, like the thalamus and the amygdala, for example, in the case of um, negative emotion and at times positive emotion, um, but stereotypically studied in the context of negative emotion. Um, The regions of the brain that are recruited for these more, um, you know, heady heady types of emotional elicitations, I often refer to these as top-down generated emotions, and they really reliably recruit dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. Um, And sometimes that's connected with other prefrontal regions. Um, And so again, there is some overlap. I don't want to overstate the differences between them, but there's really robust differences as well. And so from early on in my career, I just, from time to time, I just keep asking myself, if there's a pretty remarkable distinction in the brain regions that are recruited in these two different types of emotion generation, surely there must be downstream consequences of that. Surely that makes a difference somewhere that these types of emotions are are recruiting these regions and these other types of emotions are recruiting other ones. Even if people report in both cases, I feel fear or I feel disgust or or whatever specific emotion that we're asking them about. So that's something that I have, um, I've tried to get at in a few different studies is whether or not some of the downstream consequences of um, generating emotions in bottom-up versus top-down ways might be, um, you know, might be different. And what have you found? 
are there downstream effects or are there just really two paths that lead to the same outcome? Yeah. Um, I think that, that so far, I think my answer is uh, there might be something to it. I, I can't definitively say yes, absolutely. Once you generate emotions in these two ways, everything that happens later, the memory you have and the way that you regulate your emotions and the way that you um, express those to people and the way social, you know, people respond in social contexts. I don't have like a check, 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 check. All of those things are different. Um, in one of my earliest studies, I was looking at whether or not um, emotion regulation was one of the, the things that um, might interact with the method of emotion generation. Um, and one of the really tricky um, pieces to designing studies to study this is that it turns out that when you generate emotions in these two different ways, it's actually quite difficult to match them on the things that we normally want to match stimuli on for emotion regulation studies. So, um, the fearful faces, for example, or um, any negative emotion faces or fearful or angry faces, um, one of the most reliable ways to elicit amygdala activation is this task where you show a triad of, of negative faces. Um, but if you ask people, like, how do these faces really make you feel? And you give them a scale from, I don't know, one to seven. Um, they're like, eh, mm. right? Maybe two, two and a half. Like, you don't break the middle of the scale, right? People don't have really strong responses. You show people these complicated scenes of, like, you know, a car wreck off in the distance in a field. Um, and the amygdala, you know, is sort of like, okay, like the amygdala responds more than to a neutral scene, but not the blazing amygdala activation you see for the fearful faces. Um, but you ask people how they feel, and they're like, oh my gosh, these people must be in trouble, you know? not a seven out of seven, but, you know, solid five, mm -hmm. right. That people are feeling negatively about that, about seeing that scene. Um, and in my experience, I've tried many different ways of trying to elicit these more top-down and bottom-up generated emotions. And it's a moving target. Like it depends on what other stimuli you present with them, <laughs> um, for context, um, and all of these sorts of things. And so my first, um, my first study of this, um, I did find some limited evidence that regulating emotions that were generated from the top down um, was more effective uh, than uh, regulating emotions that were um, elicited from the bottom up. And it's really important for me to mention that um, I used a type of emotion regulation called cogn cognitive reappraisal that I consider to be very top down as well. So a very cognitive form of regulation that involves reinterpreting um, uh, the, the um, information that you have that results in a change to your emotional state. So people reappraising in the study sentences that described an emotional situation versus reappraising some of these negative faces, um, there seemed to be some evidence that it was more effective to do that um, for the top down generated emotions than the bottom up. Um, in a, a follow-up analysis to that brain imaging study, um, which was, again, as a meta-scientific note, it was actually an analysis suggested by a reviewer, <laughs> which usually like, oh, that'll take so much time. I don't know if it'll actually add anything to the paper. Totally brilliant suggestion. Whoever this anonymous reviewer was, however many years ago, thank you. Um, the reviewer said, hey, um, if what you're hypothesizing is that a match between the method of generation and the method of regulation um, is, is what leads to successful regulation, and that is what we were hypothesizing, shouldn't then an overlap in these top-down regions predict success on your emotion regulation task? And that is what we saw. So 
we looked at all the parts of the brain that were elicited, um, where activation was elicited by a top-down generated emotions. And we looked at all the parts of the brain that where activation was elicited by engaging in cognitive reappraisal. Um, and if for every person you did an overlap map of like how many voxels, how many little tiny chunks of the brain um, are are activated for both of those conditions, the degree of overlap predicted their success in regulating. So the more that they were using the same parts of their brain to both generate and regulate their emotion, the more they showed success in using, uh, excuse me, that, that cognitive regulation strategy to help themselves feel better. So um, that was preliminary, I think, evidence for, for the fact that, that um, the method of generation might have some downstream consequences. Um, I've been trying to... Um, to replicate that with very, very different methods. So I didn't want to use sentences and faces. I, I've thought about using like pictures and captions and the, that sort of thing. Um, and it's been hard. Um, just that, that first step that I mentioned of getting things that are matched on subjective, um, uh, subjective measures and then training people to regulate to both of those types of things, I think has been, um, a little trickier than I anticipated. Um, but I do have, I have a few, um, I, I was fortunate enough to get a big grant to, to follow up on that initial study. Um, and yes, it was very exciting. And I, uh, so I, I, I didn't, I'm not giving up yet on it. Um, <laughs> but the follow-up hasn't been, uh, you know, quite as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, definitive as maybe I, I had hoped at first. That is so interesting. You know, something that I'm wondering about as I'm listening to you is if you think that the goals that people have for regulating their emotions could actually play a role here. Because if we're thinking about these bottom-up biologically relevant emotions, like the ones you feel when seeing a bear in the woods, um, there may not be much of a need to regulate your emotions in the first place via reappraisal or anything else, right? There is not really much of a need to just stand there and reinterpret what the presence of this bear means uh, for your health and well-being. Instead, you just need to get out of there as fast as you can. So how should we think about the different goals that people have when faced with biologically relevant compared to less biologically relevant stimuli? That's a really great question. And I think the way that I think about it is that is maybe even one step less sophisticated than, than what you're asking, which is um, if your emotions are driven by physical features that you are exposed to in the environment or in these laboratory studies, physical features of stimuli that we're showing you artificially, um, perhaps the most efficient thing to do is to remove the stimulus right? Like to get, you know, as you say, if you're walking in the woods, like maybe you just get out of there. <laughs> um, so, so, so maybe if, if really the source of the emotion, um, has a physical instantiation, then you invoke physical distance from that thing so that it can't harm you versus emotions that come from the top down tend to come from thoughts. And so it's harder to leave your thoughts behind you can, and that's an effective way to regulate your emotions in some situations, right? Is to distract or, or um, kind of back burner some of the, the thoughts that are causing those emotions. Um, but that maybe the, the method of regulating, you know, using cognitive reappraisal is better suited to those top-down generated emotions because the source of the emotion 
is always with us. And so we have to figure out a way to, to live with that. Um, and, and it's not as easy to, to, to sort of just distance or discard that. Um, but there are also a lot of really interesting, I think, um, clinically relevant examples of times where you can't, right? So the, the, the patient for the button phobia study that we were talking about, uh, the participant in that study, um, you know, if she had had a fear of snakes, she could easily not visit the reptile house at the zoo. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and not uh, visit any websites showing, um, you know, live snakes and live in a part of the country where if she goes on a hike, she has a low chance of, of encountering one on a trail. Um, whereas she couldn't organize her life to avoid clothing buttons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that that general, um, that general principle breaks down, I think in a few ways, and that's where you do need to be able to have multiple tools in your toolkit to combat the sort of unwanted emotions that you might have. Um, and so it's important to figure out, okay, even if nine times out of 10, it might be more effective to distance yourself from a physical stimulus. What if you can't, right? Like then in that situation, is it better to use an internal tool like distraction or an internal tool like reappraisal um, or an internal external tool like response modulation, you know, to try to figure out what to do in response to, to that stimulus. Mm -hmm. So Kateri, thank you so much again for sharing this fascinating work with us today. Uh, unfortunately, I see that we're now about to run out of time. Although, of course, I could probably keep asking you questions for the rest of the day if it was up to me. But um, maybe in the last few minutes, my last question for you is, where do you think this work is going? What are the next steps for you personally, um, as well as where do you hope the field will be moving in the next five, 10 or more years with this work? That's a great, great, great question. And I think there's probably um, two different um, answers that, that sort of run in, in, in opposite directions. Um, I am really interested in um, diving even deeper into uh, reappraisal as a general, um, uh, you know, sort of um, umbrella term um, and trying to figure out are there meaningful differences in using reappraisal to reinterpret a situation in one particular way or in another particular way? So there are a lot of different um, dimensions on which we appraise things and therefore are ripe uh, for reappraisal. And so is it more... Um, is it more helpful to reappraise the dimension of time to reappraise how, you know, whether something is going to be different in the future, um, you know, reappraise something that's far in the past versus changing on your interpretation of what's going on in the present uh, and, and the current um, circumstance that, that sort of approaches you and is, is playing with fiddling with that dimension of time is that different than reappraising the severity of the situation and saying, oh, that's really just not as bad, right? Um, or reappraising the veracity of the situation of, of oh, like I, that was my first inter interpretation, but maybe it just was incorrect, you know, to begin with, which is really the cornerstone of how reappraisal is used in cognitive behavioral therapies is um, as a correction for biases and the biases represent a gap between the way the world really is and the way that the person has interpreted it. And so it could be that all of these things are kind of interchangeable and it's just more like, oh, whatever works for you in the situation or whatever you, whatever you have the, the best self-efficacy beliefs about and you're most confident in using, or it could be that there are some systematic 
um, benefits to using some types of reappraisal versus another. So one of my interests is like an even nerdier deep dive into <laughs> reappraisal and all its subtypes and, and tactics. Um, I think the other one is broader, it, it is broadening out um, and trying to really figure out um, a nice, strong map of contextual moderators, right? So um, we know quite a bit about how reappraisal works in a lab. Um, and that's really comfortable for me. I've like, <laughs> um, a recent uh, PhD student of mine for his dissertation did a compilation, um, compiled all of the self-report data that I had from like two dozen studies of reappraisal that I had done in the lab. And then he tested some hypotheses across studies that we wouldn't have empowered to test within any one single study. Um, and that was awesome. And I like, I felt, you know, similar to like my persistence in the button uh, paper, I felt kind of proud that I had, I had this sort of methodological consistency to my work. Um, but also, uh, you know, I, I think that it, it, it might be time to venture out of the familiar <laughs> uh, in terms of studying reappraisal lab, especially to these pretty artificial 30 year old, you know, images <laughs> that we use over and over again, and really trying to figure out what about what what that we know about how reappraisal works in the lab what knowledge is maintained when we apply it in the real world like what knowledge is maintained if we collaborate with clinicians as they're applying cbt in practice what knowledge is maintained if we think about our experimental manipulations not just as experimental manipulations but as single time point interventions that might have long lasting benefits um and what breaks down right what is like oh this was a really important distinction in the lab it doesn't, doesn't really apply in real life, you know, disregard, like it's an interesting intellectual point, but like not actually helpful when people are applying these techniques in real life. Um, so yeah, so I think, I think for me, what I'm most excited about is at the same time to get even more particular and nerdy, and then also to try to expand out and see, see what we can apply more broadly. That sounds really exciting. And I just can't wait to see where this work goes in the future. But until then, Thank you so much again for coming and for sharing your work with us. I really enjoyed chatting with you today. I enjoyed it as well. I appreciate the invitation and uh, thank you for devoting so much of your time to uh, this exciting podcast and getting information out about sort of cutting edge psychology research. It's great. Yeah, thank you.